Hi, this is Brian Loren, songwriter producer for Michael Jackson on the MJ Cast. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. I love, <laughs> I love my fans. Just simply Michael Jackson. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. Unfortunately, Q is unable to join me today to record this episode, so I'll be doing this one solo. Uh, it's Jamin Bull here, and I'm very excited because we've got a phenomenal special guest here and our first musical collaborator of season four of the MJ Cast. Brian Loren is a record producer and singer songwriter who has worked with a number of notable artists, including Whitney Houston, Barry White, Sly Stone, Sting, and of course, the King of Pop. Michael Jackson. Brian worked with Michael for a number of years in the early 90s in preparation for his Dangerous album. Songs include Superfly Sister, Serious Effect, my personal favourite, and Do the Bartman. Brian is also credited as an instrumentalist on a range of Michael Jackson songs. Unfortunately, a vast majority of Brian's work has leaked out to the public and has been enjoyed by fans for many years for free. There's certainly a way that you can give back, and it's through going to brianloren.com. We'll talk more about that later in the show. But first of all, Brian, welcome to the MJ Cast. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you for joining us. We're very, very excited. I'm glad I could be here. Thanks for having me. That's, that's not a problem. And just, just for listeners, tell us where you're Skyping in from today. We're Skyping in from lovely Los Angeles, California. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, is that is that where you've always kind of been based and worked with uh, people you've collaborated with? Uh, no, well, I'm originally from uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Yeah, and um, that's where everything actually started. I actually did work for several years in Philadelphia. My first album I wrote and produced in Philadelphia before I migrated to Los Angeles years later. Yeah, but most of the work that you're doing these days is is in LA. Uh, well, actually, uh, not because, but yes, I guess. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've done work in other places, but I'm based in LA. So yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, you know, as we get into the start of the show, we always, what we, what we do is we always try and go back to our guests early lives and find out where they sort of came from. You mentioned you're from Philadelphia. Talk to us about your childhood and, and you know, where, where you grew up, how you grew up and, and how you developed a love of music. I grew up in Philadelphia. My... There are several family members that were musicians. My father was a musician, although I didn't know him growing up. But probably the lion's share of what I am as a musician uh, genetically comes from my father. But my grandmother played piano and guitar, so she would sit me in her lap and play when I was little. And my grandfather, who gave me my first couple of instruments, my first guitar and bass, also, you know, he tinkered with guitar, but he saw my interest, and so that is what uh, would spur him. And then, uh, you know, my mother sang. My mother actually, uh, as a teenager, was in a singing group that had a, a local record. <laughs> um, you know, so it's always been around me. When I went to high school, I I went to Overbrook High School, the, the school that's probably most famous is Will Smith's alma mater. 
Um, wow. Uh, yeah, we were we were there at the same. I didn't know Will, but we were there at the same time. He was uh, he was a sophomore when I was a senior, I suppose. And so it was a it was a special uh, high school for music in Philadelphia, very well known for that. You know, I told my mother probably at fourteen or so that one day I would produce a Michael Jackson record. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it came true. <laughs> yeah, that is amazing. It wasn't. It wasn't a you know. To me, it was just, it was a matter of fact kind of thing. It was something that I knew would happen. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Incredible. And you made it happen. It's interesting to hear that when you started out, you actually were a multi-instrumentalist. You didn't start on one instrument like many people no, do. Well, that's, that's actually not quite true. I mean, I started playing drums. Drums was my main instrument for, for many years. Yeah. Uh, even after I picked up a few other instruments, drums was still my main instrument. But I played drums probably from age three to age 12 or so. And it was 12 when I picked up a uh, guitar for the first time, uh, 13 or so when I picked up a bass for the first time. Yeah. 14 when I started playing keyboards and I started doing sessions as a keyboard player at 15. Yeah. So it was fast, you know, it was a fast progression change to other instruments, but, uh, it started one way. And, and I guess, uh, you know, as a kid, you want to hear as a kid, when you're playing music, you want to hear other instruments, you want to play with other people, but there was no one else around. So when I wanted to hear other instruments, I had to play them. And that's really how it started. You know, did you do much work in a band or was it straight into session work? Well, uh, no, it was straight into session work. Remember, as I said, I'm, 14 and i start playing keyboards and at 15 i start doing sessions as a keyboard player yeah so there really there was no, yeah it was straight out of the bedroom into the studio wow basically yeah wow and how did you make that connection like how did you actually get work in the studio well again uh because of my location and you know my mother as i said she uh made a record as a teenager and so she had some of her friends these then as she went to uh, high school. She went to high school with members of a, with what ended up being members of a well-known Philadelphia institution, which was MFSB, uh, the popular orchestra that made most of the music or all of the music actually for the Leon Leon Huff, uh, Kenny Gamble recordings. Wow, wow. And a lot of those guys were her, her schoolmates. Yeah. And so obviously they knew her son <laughs> and um, a handful of them would pay attention as I was developing and eventually one of them took some of my music and played it for a well-known Philadelphia producer named Nick Martinelli. Okay. And Nick Martinelli ended up being basically my first mentor. He was the guy that, uh, brought me into the studio to do sessions. Well, I actually, Nicky brought me into the studio to do what would be the sessions that would get me my first job in a band. Mm. <laughs> the band was called Fat Larry's Band, and it was Fat Larry's Band that I did my first recording sessions for. Yeah. And they liked the way I played, so they asked me to join the band. That's really cool. Yeah. And in those early days, what sort of, you know, did you face any challenges at all in transitioning out from school into, you know, musical work, or did you just know straight only, up that's what you wanted? Oh, yeah. Well, there, there was no question that this was it. No pun intended. Um <laughs> There was no question that I was going to be a musician. I, you know, it was it was something that came easy enough to me that because it came easy, it compelled me to do it. Yeah. You know, the more the easier it is, you know, if it's something interesting or intricate, the more you're interested in it. And so, yeah. um, 
you know, I, I always knew that, that, that this was what was going to be the thing. And, you know, and it's funny. I'll tell you this, too, that, you know, innately hum, as a human being, you know, what is for you if something is for you, because even as a child who knew what he wanted, I was surrounded by adults who told me I wasn't that good. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, um, if, if you weren't a person like me, meaning a musician or something, maybe you didn't recognize. But but no, that's not true either, because I had certain teachers tell me that I wasn't that good. So you've got that working and then you've got what's going on inside you saying, well, I don't know what they're missing, but I feel good about it. <laughs> so I'm going to go with it. That that just blows my mind because as a teacher, like I am a teacher and I can't imagine a reality where I would tell a student who's passionate about something that they're no good at it. <laughs> I can't imagine Yes, and, and yeah, and, and I can tell you as a child hearing it from people, it's, it's, it's quite discouraging. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, somehow uh, for me, it was fuel. The yeah. more somebody would tell me I couldn't do it, the more I'm like, okay, I'll show you. Yeah. And, um, and that's what, you know, that's what it became really. I mean, it, it became, I'm going to do this bec- almost in spite of those telling me that I can't do it or I'm not capable of it. Yeah. So yeah, there you go. How, how much do you think that Philadelphia sound from those early days has gone on to inspire your work later on? Well, certainly in my developmental years, you know, fundamentally it was all very important. Yeah. Um, especially since, um, I was able to, you know, to interact with some of those people. I mean, I actually a very popular group in uh, from that from that era is Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, and I actually played on a Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes record toward the end of that time. You know, so it was very important. Uh, those people were all very, those people were iconic in Philadelphia. They're icon- iconic all over the world for music folks, but in Philadelphia, they were just icons in general. I had my own path. Obviously, my my musical hero as a child was Stevie Wonder, and so. It was really the the true musical awakening for me was probably as a five or six year well four five or six year old mm. four year old um, and that was Stevie's uh, Music of My Mind album mm. that was like that you know that that album became my sole source of entertainment it was the video games it was the TV it was the music it was everything yeah uh, for a long time and still is I mean you know I find that. I am. If I listen to music now, I'm usually listening to music that I grew up with more than stuff that's brand new. Yeah. You know, although I, you know, I I keep I keep in touch with what's happening. But when I'm listening for enjoyment or for relaxation or for whatever, it's it's usually old stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Fully with you on that. Although in saying that, the an artist that I connect with a lot from Philadelphia is more of a contemporary artist, I guess. But Questlove, the drama from the roots. Okay. Yeah, record producer as well, and he, he. Um, yeah, I know Quest. A, yeah, he's got a great album. It's a really um, rare one, I think. That didn't, didn't. It wasn't released. It didn't have a huge release, but it was called. Um, I think it's called Philadelphia Experiment. Yeah, that is yeah. one. That is an. That is excellent. I love that record. Yeah, I'm familiar with that word. That's great. He. So that's my connection a little bit with Phil, <laughs> Philadelphia, but and Michael himself, and we'll get to Michael a little bit later. But I guess he also had a. Um, a connection with with Philadelphia as well, having worked with a range of musicians from there. Not only yourself, but you know the Jacksons did two albums with Gamble and Huff. Yeah, the self titled album and Going Places. That's right. And when they were there doing those records, uh, all the kids were excited. Uh, myself among them. I mean, we you know we we knew they were in town, <laughs> and uh, there was an energy about that. You know, yeah. while, while they were there working, I never I never got to run into any of them. 
then. But um, but yeah, we we were all very excited when they were in Philly. Yeah, and that's and that's some of the the greatest work I think. Looking back on it, I mean, uh, of course, the iconic status came a little bit later, but those early records are so underappreciated. There's some great great tracks on them. There are, and and you have to uh, also keep in mind that that was a trying time for the Jacksons because they had left Motown. They were struggling for an identity. They were, you know, so it, it was it was some journeyman time for them. You know, they they were trying to find themselves really, and, and you know, I feel like they ultimately came into their own with the Destiny album was when uh, was when things really began to change. You yeah, know? but um. But yeah, that's that's it was great music. It was great music. Now you said you started out mainly as a um, a musician for other people's records, like a session musician. Talk to me right. about how the transition into production actually took place. Well, you have to remember, I'm an artist first, and production, believe it or not, is something actually I didn't ever want to do. It wasn't mm-hmm. important to me. I ended up, I kind of got railroaded or drafted into being a producer, almost entirely against my will. And it just it just wound up being something that I got known for doing. But, you know, first there was a solo record that I did in Philadelphia that contained a single called Lollipop Love that was popular then. And then I did another solo record for Arista that did not really get released. I do believe it was released, you know, kind of like in foreign territories or something. It wasn't released in America. And um, so any, you know, doing production was something that just kind of happened. Um, I, you know, somebody offered me an opportunity. I think the first thing that I did as a producer was a record for a girl named Melissa Morgan. Hmm. And it was just, uh, it was, it was me at that time looking for an opportunity to do something that was unrelated to my own project or unrelated to just being a, you know, I was trying to branch out from being a session musician. Hmm. It, it was something that evolved, you know, naturally, but, not because I really wanted it to. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And and throughout your time in the record recording industry, I mean, other than Michael, who are some of the, the artists you've worked with that you're most proud of your work with them? Well, I'm, I'm proud of all of the work that I've done. I think that, um, you know, uh, the, the, I've definitely evolved as I've been working, but you, whatever place you're in when you're working, you know, you, hopefully you, you know, you, uh, you live, you know, meaning meaning you you take it all in at the time and you you express yourself accordingly yeah. the time that you're in. And I think I've done that. I mean, you know, I, I, the Shanice Wilson album that I did, which was her first album, and and uh, I still get a lot of uh, I still get a lot of people telling me how much they like that record. I really had a good time doing that record because Shanice was an open vessel she you know she was able to do whatever i wanted her to do and she did exactly that and that's why the record sounds like it does it's, it's it came out really good yeah um yeah. vesta williams is another uh was a great talent uh uh she left here too young but she was a great talent a very shaka khan style voice really talented woman we did a record her first record it was the kind of relationship that producers want with artists you know where the it's completely back and forth between the two of us very open very you know uh, an artist with a lot of talent able to execute whatever but again just another great artist barry white a great artist uh sting an artist and a, and a person in some ways like myself so while we were working it was um 
uh, cool exchange between us. You know, all, all of the production experiences I've had for the most part have been great, even though, you know, it's it can be hard work doing production because you're enlisted not only to make music, but kind of to be a psychologist as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, to bring out the best of the artist, I guess. Sure. And sometimes against the artist's will. Sometimes mm-hmm. the artist is not into it. Sometimes they, you know, not because of you, but because whatever happened that day, whatever's going on that week, you know, and so you have to inspire them to get into it. And that's, that sometimes becomes what you end up getting paid for. Yeah. You know, especially if it's an artist that has, if it's an artist that has ability, then sometimes it's about getting them to do that thing that we all want to hear. And, and, you know, sometimes that becomes the jobs. If, if it's an artist with not that much talent, Usually it's about trying to help them put together a performance. So it's different things for different situations. And I mean, geez, this really, uh, I'm drawing some parallels between my own life. I mean, I'm in a sort of a managerial kind of role, I guess, within my school. I manage a team of teachers. Is like office politics, is, is, is politics between all the different players on a record uh, something a producer has to handle as well? Is water wet? i mean yeah is politics a part of life yeah sure yeah was were were there were there a great deal of unnecessary and overwhelming politics on the michael jackson records absolutely (laughs) so yeah was there were there were there incredible politics in the making of dangerous oh my god I mean, yes. I mean, of course, and we'll get into this a little later, but as you get into Michael's 90s work, there's so many cooks in the kitchen. Like the 80s work, work, you know, with Quincy, it's really just Quincy, Bruce, Michael, and, you know, he's bringing in session musicians and and different people from Toto, et cetera. But then you get into the 90s. there's There's only a handful of people at the top in control, and the record sounds like it. Right. The record sound, you hear the difference. You hear the, the cohesion in and off the wall. You hear that record through and through is a solid piece of work. And then records later, sometimes, you know, kind of a little disjointed can be some of it, especially the records that that they released when he passed. Yeah, I but, would um, agree. I'd agree. Totally. But uh, yeah, on 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 dangerous. Yeah. Heavy, heavy, heavy politics. Well, let's let's get back to let's get to dangerous. So, when you got the call from Michael's camp to work on it, what was your reaction? Well, I didn't get a, a call from Michael's camp. I got a call from Michael. The first call I got was not about making music, and that came from Michael's camp. That was about uh, perhaps doing a publishing deal with his company, which I did, ATV Music, at that time. And so we knew from my doing the publishing deal that at some point I would probably do some work with him. And then he called. And um, we talked on the phone for a while first. We talked on the phone probably. Oh, well, what happened was we talked on the phone for a couple of weeks maybe. And uh, then the bad show was in town. And I met him at the bad show. I went backstage at the bad show. And after that, we talked a little while on the phone some more and then we went in the studio at Westlake in Santa Monica and at that time there you know it wasn't the dangerous record there was no dangerous record it was just we were going in to cut some songs it's rare that a, that a record has a title in the beginning stages I started on dangerous when in the beginning you know he had been cutting tracks 
um, as as you know artists do. He had just been cutting tracks, but when I started with him, that was when the album actually started, and it was not dangerous just yet. No, I mean know? he was at that time. He was so this was yeah he was working as well. I think with um, Babyface and L.A. Reid roughly around this very late 80s period. So you're saying you, you started working with Michael in the very late 80s, so like 89? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. Great, great. And like I'd imagine when you were working with him, there would have been some pressure to, to in your mind perhaps, to match the success or influence that Michael's work had with Quincy. I mean, how did, how did that impact your choices or how you were working with him? Were you thinking that? Not at not at all. The only reference to prior work for me when we began was I wanted to make a record as consistent as Off the Wall. That was my goal. Hmm. That was what I wanted to do. And if you listen to tracks like Work That Body, which so many have become so familiar with, you hear in Work That Body almost a return to, well, no, not almost, but a, a return to like earlier funk. Hmm. If you think about Bad, if you think about Thriller, if you think about, well, right, those were, those were the two records. Off the Wall was my target. So if you think about Bad and Thriller, those were very pop records entirely. You know, I wanted Michael to return to something funkier. And so that would explain Work That Body, that would explain Serious Effect, that would explain, you know, I wanted to go back to something that was grittier yeah yeah and um and also you know with the ballad thing i wanted to do the the lush r&b ballad thing which explains satisfy you yeah i mean those things were you know things that michael jackson as a as a young crooner shined on you know and those were the things i wanted to do were those things you talked to him about like were you and you and he on the same you know, wavelength? We, we didn't really discuss direction it was just about let's just do stuff that we think is hot yeah, yeah. so so we didn't talk yeah we didn't talk about you know what we're going to try there was there's not a lot of analytics you know there's there's just let's just do stuff that feels good yeah yeah and um yeah so it was more about that and if, and, and to that end i mean uh you know like in the studio our our relationship was i am the producer you know you have to remember that michael uh was Michael Jackson. And so he was always doing a thousand things. It was always something going on, whether he was in the studio or not, even in the studio, he would take meetings with regard to other projects. So he would be, he would like come to the studio and so let's say he comes to the studio at 10 AM. He might come in at 10 AM and he's not going to start doing any singing until two or three that afternoon. And between 10 and two or three, he's got two or three meetings that come in that he has to take about, artwork about you know something else he's working on about you know whatever and so he's trusting the people that are working with music working on music with him to what i call bring the jelly which means you know something that we're all gonna be able to dig our teeth into when we start working yeah and so i am the guy really in our relationship responsible for songs my object is to bring him tracks sometimes hooks and melodies that I think are hot and then he fills in the blanks. That's how we were doing it. Yeah. yeah. And okay. that, that is the, uh, that is the formula on Superfly sister. Like for example, 
I brought him the title, the track, and the basic melody for what I was calling the chorus. But he used what I was calling a chorus melody for the verse. He wanna do something freaky to you. That was I had a chorus melody that was super fly, sister, she just do. It was like it was the same kind of oh, pocket. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But he used that for the verse, and he also didn't use the name of the song and the title. I thought that was hot. You know, he didn't use the, the, the title of the track as any part of the lyric. You know, that's I, I love when that happens, when it works. That was the whole of our relationship in general. Same thing with Work That Body. Work That Body, I brought him the track. I brought him that chorus that you hear. I brought him, you know, all of the arrangement, the ahs that happened before the chorus starts. Those were all ideas I handed him. He filled in the blanks. The lyrics that you hear, he's doing. He filled in the blanks on the lyrics. So you you weren't bringing him ready-made songs. He you were bringing him ideas, and he was actually fleshing them out. How was he fleshing them out? Was he like vocalizing ideas to you, or is that what I just said? <laughs> no, I was I was bringing him kind of songs. Okay, and leaving the lyrics for him to fill in. I see what you mean. Okay, melodies and stuff. I would hand him melodies. Well, the melody on. Uh, the melody on Work That Body, I did not hand him. But no, I would bring him melodies, hooks, and tracks. And I would leave lyrics because lyrics, I, I feel, probably for the most part, are what is most personal to a singer, especially if they are a writer. Yeah. And, and you know, I guess in the course of doing certain stuff, if there was fleshing out, you know, some of that we would actually do together. But never at any time were there any decisions made that I wasn't like you know it was really about how I felt about it
Tito Jackson, and it's Tito time. And thanks for listening to the MJ cast. Okay, so um, she got it. Work that body. If you don't love me, Superfly Sister and Serious Effect, and uh, also Stop. Man in Black. The- Stop. <laughs> what is If You Don't Love Me? That's not one of my songs. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. That's a, that's a song that leaked that's been attributed to you in the community. I have no idea why. Wow. <laughs> I have no idea why. <laughs> that is crazy. Maybe, I guess unless, maybe. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Unless, unless, because I don't know what we're talking about. So unless, unless somebody's calling a song by the wrong title. It could be that. The songs I just mentioned, th- these are songs that, that you, t- you name in your letter, which I, I really want to talk about soon. Um, the, if You these, Don't Love Me is not a song named in the letter. No, that's right. But the other ones, th- they were. Yeah. Yes. And the first ones of these have have complete vocals. Aside from Man in Black, did you guys collaborate on any other songs apart from the ones named? Yeah, there are a bunch of other songs. And that's, I'm not going to say much more about that. No, that's okay. I appreciate that. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, you got... Okay. Wow. Well, okay. I mean, there, there are actually... Those songs that I named, there are other titles that are out. Yeah. There are other, there are other titles that, are, that, you know, that people know of. I just yeah. don't... I don't want to get into discussing what's out there. Oh, and also, you asked a question about the YouTube stuff being taken down. That that will happen shortly. <laughs> that will happen shortly. Because I've often thought about that. Like, I mean, and that's, yeah, it, it bothers me when, when producers have worked so hard for so long and their stuff's just available out there on YouTube. That's To me, that's sad. Yeah, it, it really is. And, and um, I think, which is part of the reason I actually wrote the letter. Oh, here's the, here's the fire engine, I promise you. <laughs> Hold on one second. Well, actually, it's not a fire engine. It's a police car cruiser. Okay. So, um, when he died is when it became, or when it came to my attention that my stuff had leaked. And what was really debilitating was it was when he died that I found out that the stuff had leaked, but it had already leaked. It had, it had already leaked some time before that, some of it anyway. I called, or, or not called, but spoke to a friend of mine who was in the Netherlands. You know, we were talking about that Michael had died, and uh, I said, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, and I, I just found out a, a bunch of my stuff leaked, too. That, um, and then I named, uh, the song I think I named was probably Worth That Body. And uh, he said, oh, Brian, that, you know, 
I'd heard that like a year ago. That was already floating around over here. <laughs> and so that was the first I'd heard of it. And then I started to look and I found that, you know, a lot of it was everywhere. And I was very, I was very hurt. Yeah. Um, you know, it, and it, it, you know, I, I have my ideas about how it happened and all of that, but it's neither here nor there. The point is that it did. And, and so, you know, you feel, you know, it, it was like a double, it was like insult to injury. It was like the, none of the stuff got finished to make the record. And then now it's just out floating around and anybody can have it whenever they want it. Yeah. And uh, the other thing about that, there are many things about it. You have people hearing material that is, number one, unfinished. So they don't know what it was supposed to actually be. They only know this rough example of it even though they were you know even though they are also they're all actual masters works in progress actual multi-track works in progress they're still sketches they're not anywhere near done and so you've got people listening to those and judging them and that's painful you know it's, mm. you're, you're saying how good something is or how good it's not and you don't even know what it was really supposed to sound like along with the fact that while it's not finished it's also not mixed so it doesn't sound like what a record is actually going to sound like. It sounds like a work in progress, which is what it is. So, you know, it's, it's hard having people. And I understand, you know, there are a lot of things that are going on with regard to that. Now in the entertainment world, you have Dave Chappelle who does live shows now and he locks up people's phones so they can't YouTube record and YouTube them, yeah. you know, so that when he goes to the next location, the people there haven't heard his material yet. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what it used to be like when you went to a concert, you didn't know what was going to happen at the concert uh, for the artists you were going to see. If you did, it was only because you heard what happened in the last city, you know? So you were looking for, okay, well, they're going to perform such and such a song or they've got such and such a kind of set, but you didn't know for sure until you saw it, you know, where now you know everything about anything before it gets to you because it's all on YouTube. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's a painful thing. Absolutely. So what, what, uh, what inspired me to write the letter was after years of receiving, uh, well, seeing the stuff floating around, receiving inquiries about it, people wanting me to send them copies, which is like, wow, really? You're asking me to send you a copy of my unfinished pirated work. Okay. <laughs> um, but That's offensive. That's crazy. Oh, oh well, well, well here, let's listen on. <laughs> um, it was only in January that I received a note at Facebook from a fellow who, you know, starts off very complimentary. Hi, Brian. I'm, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's hi, Brian. Um, you know, I've, I've recently become a big fan of your work as I've been trying to sort out who the producers are on some of my favorite material. And, you know, um, I really love work that body. Just, he doesn't say who the artist is or whatever. He just goes into it. I really love work that body. And I was trying to figure out, I was wondering if you remember, and you may not because you may not know the space you were in then. He said something like that. But I was trying, I wanted to know if you remembered what you used to record certain sounds or whatever because I'm trying to replicate the feel of it. Now here's a guy <laughs> who's telling me that I have your pirated material and I'm trying to copy it. Will you help me, basically? <laughs> you know? So he, caught, he happened to catch me in a particular mood that day. And I wrote him back. Normally, I would ignore a note like that. But I wrote him back, and I basically told him, look, the music that you're talking about is music that not only are you not supposed to have, but
but you're not even supposed to know it exists. So imagine how you would feel if someone came to you asking you for information about your, you know, improperly appropriated material. And it's really insensitive. You know, I, I said something like the, the Internet uh, and technology have made us all very insensitive. So try to be more sensitive. And when I push send on that note, just at the same moment, I thought to myself, it would be too much like right for this guy to write me back and apologize. But lo and behold, that's what he did. He wrote me back and he was very contrite. He apologized in three or four different points. He said, I'm, I'm sorry for number one, you know, participating and downloading your stuff illegally. And he went on and on about it. And I mean, I almost felt bad that I had reprimanded him, <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but it was, it was his contrition that made me feel like maybe more people feel that way. You know, maybe because I can imagine, you know, if my hero had had music floating around, uh, you know, if I was a kid and somehow there was a bunch of unreleased Stevie Wonder music floating around and I found I could get my hands on it, I probably, you know, I probably just would, just like anybody else would. So I get, I understand that, you know, it's Michael Jackson music and people just wanted to hear it. It wasn't really about stealing it or appropriating it or, or acquiring it illegally. No one's thinking that way. And I get that. So I figured, um, you know, maybe people would understand if they were able to hear my voice, to, you know, hear my thoughts and put a voice to situations like this that continue to happen. And it's going to continue to happen. There's no, you know, there's no way to stop it, really. And I have no um, particular goals or expectations with airing that thing. That thing is just, it's, it's really more a principle thing. And it's, you know, this is a person, imagine, you know, if you really like this work, if all of the people who do things that you like, they just wound up where anybody could have them and nobody ever got paid for doing them. I mean, how would the people that make the music that you like continue to do it? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's something to think about because I've heard so many people say music should be free. It's like, okay, Music should be free, but what about the people that are making the music? That's right, yeah. Music, it's fine for music to be free if you're the one making it, and it will always be free for you. <laughs> you know, I can sit down at a piano and amuse myself anytime I feel like it. But that's me doing it for me. I'm not taking it from somebody else. Hmm. So it's just something to think about. I, I, you know, I hope people would think about it. In fact, um, I've already seen that they have, where many people who have seen the site have already actually contributed and some of them way more than they had to. And along with their contributions, they say things like, I've listened to this music for years and it's impacted my life. And I agree that you're right. You know, I mean, and that really is all somebody like me wants to hear is that, you know, they understand that the people that are there understand it and they appreciate what it is that, uh, that was available to them. Yeah, for sure. And and that's like I guess why we're having this conversation today because we at the MJ cast totally are behind you 100% in that way, for sure. And we speak to many people as well who 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 feel that. And um I have been enjoying this songs for a long time as well. And I've always felt terribly sorry for you that you you haven't been officially recognized for a lot of this work. And um I think it's only I think it's only fair. I appreciate that. Thank you. 
That's okay. What about if, if the Michael Jackson estate contacted you tomorrow about doing Dangerous 30 and they said, we need your songs to put on a bonus disc or whatever. We're going to put them out. How would you feel about that? Uh, that's kind of a loaded question because um, it's like asking somebody how they would feel if, you know, if God came back today. <laughs> that means like how do you how do you answer you know well i, I just know, know the reason it's, <laughs> the reason it came across like that is because the more record producers i talk to the more hesitation i hear around the estate and around well well and and that's that's kind of why it makes it a difficult question to answer because you know i i'm i'm pretty sure what you just suggested isn't going to happen so it's like what if you know how would you feel if one in one uh, officially today equal three how would that make you feel you know that's not going to happen <laughs> so it's like what well, i don't I, you know i can't really know how to answer that i've already had you know extensive conversations with the estate so i, I you know i already kind of know where it's at um and uh you know and there are a handful of things that are included in that equation that um can't really discuss yeah. so but yeah, so I, I really don't know. I don't, I don't know how to answer that. Yeah, no, that's okay. That's all right. <laughs> let's, um, if you don't mind, let's talk about some of that, some of those songs, if that's okay. I would, I would love to talk about Serious Effect. That is my number one favorite Brian Loren and Michael Jackson collaboration. Um, and I will tell you that, I will tell you about Serious Effect that I actually believed that Serious Effect was going to end up on Dangerous. Wow. And was, was, very disheartened when Michael said no, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, um, serious effect was a track. The reason, part of the reason that I believed it was going to end up on the record is because it got to the place vocally. Now the, here was a track. Here was a track that Michael is responsible entirely on his own for what's happening on the top of it. Here was a track where that happened because what happened was I, I put the track together on a humbug. Like I'm in the studio and almost bored that, that afternoon and started messing around with some particular sounds. And that's what came out of it. I mean, it, I probably did that track in, you know, a half hour, maybe an hour. And then before I was leaving the studio, I went in the office where he was and said, just, hey, check this out. And let me know what you think. And I think after that, I was going to be gone from the studio for a few days. I wasn't going to be back. So when I finally did come back, he wasn't at the studio that day, but he had actually gone in the studio with Bill Bottrell and done those vocals that you hear. <laughs> um, and so when I came in, that tape was left for me and I put the tape on and I was blown away. I loved it. And his enthusiasm in those vocals and the, the speed with which that came about, because, again, it was something he did entirely without me in that case, um, made me feel like it was a sure contender. And so I went on and did more finishing on the tracks. And that's that. That's how that came to that point. It's a great song. I absolutely love it. Thank you.
the animal magnetism She's too hot to touch, too cool for criticism Each and every day's like a mini movie being filmed Cause I'm the captain and her body's the helm I'm shivering, quivering, I smile while I'm delivering Gifts of love and passion, it's never been so intense And spiritual like incense, I rub up against an awe of a silence Then I scream like a man out of his wits Cause that's how serious a serious effect is This is Taj Jackson of 3T, and you're listening to the MJ cast. As for She Got It and and Work That Body, out of those two songs, what song would you say you had the most back and forth with Michael on, the most collaborative? She Got It. He had something to do with the arrangement. At the end of the verses when it stops and you have the hand claps to count you back in, that was his idea. Yeah. And at the time, I didn't like it. (laughs) <laughs> because it, it sounded typical. It was like a typical thing he would do. But then as we were putting it together and I could hear it in context for a while, I started to kind of appreciate it. Uh, another interesting story I tell about that track is that sound that you hear, uh, the hand clap sound that you hear counting in, that's Michael. It's, it's one hand clap in a tiled bathroom <laughs> that was sampled. So it's literally no effects on it or anything. So next time you hear that or listen to it, think about the explosion that that is. That's literally just a hand clap. No effects, no nothing, just a sound bouncing off the tile. 
<laughs> and um, it literally sounded like it sounds on the record in the in the bathroom because I I ran in the bathroom after him when he first we we sent an engineer and he said yeah we need a, let's get a fresh hand clap okay so we send the engineer in the bathroom and he claps a couple times and Michael's sitting there and listening and seeming unimpressed and he says no 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 like this and then he goes in the bathroom and claps just one or two times and I, and I run in there behind him because like what does he got in his hands what is he using what 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 is he because it was just so different than the hand clap from the engineer was a hand clap the hand clap from Michael was like some kind of machine that, <laughs> that somebody had turned on or something. So I, I ran in the bathroom to see. I mean, what what does he have in his hands? You know, that's like a characteristic common among some of the Jacksons. Because even Randy Jackson, once I was with Randy Jackson, and he started to sing a song and snap his fingers. And I grabbed his hand to see what he had in his hand when he started to snap because it was so loud. It was so big. And I was like, man, what, what, he's what? And he opens his hand, there's nothing. He just, it was just loud. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> he just worked it out somehow. I mean, yeah, so. Amazing, um, amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, Superfly Sister, this song came out on Blood on the Dance Floor. Talk to us about right. this song. Talk to us about the feeling of what it was like when finally one of your pieces that you worked on with Michael had come out. It was somewhat, uh, anticlimactic it was just that song yeah. and you also have to remember too that um while none of the songs i did came out on dangerous dangerous still sounds like brian loren a great deal a lot of my ideas were used a lot of things a lot of songs that are written by others that don't have my name on them sound like my songs sound like tracks that you haven't heard <laughs> and uh so that bothered me of course but even more than that over the remainder of Michael's career, you can hear little bits of the same ideas, even on Blood on the Dance Floor. There are songs that sound like songs we were working on on Dangerous that don't have my name on them. <laughs> so, so I've got all of that to deal with, along with my songs being pirated. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's unsettling to hear people say how great something is that sounds like you when your name's not on it, when they're talking about the other people involved. <laughs> so... Yeah, you know, I often say to some people, I often say to people, listen to Teddy Riley's music before Dangerous and then listen to Dangerous and they sound different. They do. That's right. I <laughs> mean, that's a- what people say. People people often will say that <laughs> the the New Jack stuff on, on Dangerous is better than any other New Jack stuff that Teddy Riley ever did. And I, I suspect I have a little something to do with that. Hmm. It'll be, yeah, one day, hopefully, if those um, earlier versions of different songs can come out. Well, I've already played some of the things. I've played, I've played a couple of the tracks. I, I, did, a, I did a little get-together in Paris, France, a uh, year before last. Yeah, we reported on it. <laughs> oh, okay. At the time. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't talk about what happened there, but more the fact that you were going. There were some bad things that happened there. Somebody, somebody actually brought a tape recorder in, and I think the man in black you know of came from that. Um, and it's like uh, even even all the years later, we still got people sneaking up and, you know, perpetrating this way. Yeah. But um, well, the man in black I've heard, it's got no leads on it, though. So I don't know if that's. Yeah, well, that's, that's what played it. That's what played at the meeting in, right. in Paris. Yeah. Um, it had no lead on it. But um, I played one of the songs that is clearly responsible for some of the stuff that's happening on Dangerous. It was just a track. There's no vocals on it. 
And um, everybody in the room got it right away. <laughs> everybody <laughs> in the room got it immediately. You could hear from this one track how at least two of the songs on Dangerous borrowed from it. So I had to deal with all of that. <laughs> um, I've had to deal with all of that as, as, as much as dealing with my own stuff actually being pirated. Yeah. So Far out. I'm only sort of just beginning to realize the depth of... Um... Exactly. A lot of people don't. A lot of people don't. So when it's almost as if like when these good things have happened, like Superfly Sister coming out or whatever like that, it's nothing compared to what you've actually had to deal with in terms of people taking advantage. Exactly. And also think about this. Even while people, you know, have donated and make the wonderful, leave me the wonderful sentiments that they have, you know, no amount of people donating would ever equal the royalties I would have made <laughs> if my yeah. songs had been on those records. You know, so it's like, the whole and, and I'm I'm saying that to go back to the letter to say it, it's not like I'm expecting to like get paid from releasing the letter. You know, I just thought the people that felt like I feel that maybe, you know, certainly they would have bought those songs if they had been released commercially. So if you would have bought them commercially, then treat it that way, you know, whatever you think it's worth. But um, yeah, I, you know, there's there's no way really to ever recover. So we've got the fact that the songs never made the record. We've got the fact that they've all been, oh, well, not all of them, but a great many of them have been pirated. We've got the fact that the estate has pretty much made it plain they have no intention of releasing any of that material at any point. So, you know, so it's like I spent all of that time, and this goes to another question that you asked, where uh, you asked if uh, I had any regrets about spending so much time on uh, working with Michael. And the answer is absolutely, because I took time away from my own career because of it imagine i told people uh when we started working on dangerous michael asked me not to work on anything else mm. that's actually an oral contract <laughs> you know i told michael okay and then proceeded to tell other record executives when they came to me that i couldn't really do anything else right now because i'm working on this michael jackson record so imagine in 89 90 i do that late 91 or 92 whenever dangerous comes out there's no brian loren songs on that record Imagine what those record executives thought. <laughs> you know, well, he's, he, he told us he couldn't work for us. He does not even any of his songs on the record. Yeah. I mean, you know, so there's a whole bunch of extra stuff that came with that. I mean, yeah, it got real deep. Uh, that, that's a common story. I hear that Michael told a lot of his producers, a lot of them will say, Michael told us not to work with anybody else we had to focus 100% on him but they they in a way they got lucky some of their songs came out like Rodney Jerkins is an example of that he gave up right. for four or five years of his life or whatever and then well um, Rodney Jerkins definitely definitely can't compare me to Rodney Jerkins because he had releases yeah that's right so you, you're gonna when you work with anyone you're gonna do stuff that doesn't come out yeah <laughs> any artist that you work with you might write a song or two that don't get used even you know the Shanice Wilson album that I mentioned I did three or four songs with Shinies that didn't get used. We just, you know, we, we surpassed them. And, and so there was stuff that was left over in the can. That's just something that happens when you're working on a project. Yeah. So, you know, but when you're, when you're working with somebody and they're, they're wanting you to just work with them because they want to be the exclusive person that has your material when it's time for it to come out. They want to be the only person with your new stuff when it comes out. That's very different. Mm. You know? Uh, and especially, like I said, you know, those tracks, the tracks that we did, little bits and pieces of those tracks were used for the rest of Michael's career. So dangerous history, 
Blood on the Dance Floor, and Invincible all have little bits of music that sound like some of those tracks. Would you, I mean, <laughs> would if you would feel comfortable, would you be able to give us a, just a small example of, of a song that did come out that sounds really similar or a part of it? Well, without hearing the actual material, you wouldn't really know. Yeah. You know, so it, it's like, you know, what does that matter? But, you know, it's... it's uh, uh, you know, I'm, and I'm still, I'm, there's so many things uh, that I'm leaving out. Like, you know, I actually did write, or co-write rather, Black or White. I, I wrote the rap that's in Black or White. Now, that's a story that's not very common. <laughs> but it's also a story that Michael is not responsible for why I'm not credited there. And I'll just leave that there. Yeah. You know, there was, there's another party. And the other party is the one that I did the rap with because they had done it and didn't like it. I came in, I rewrote it, and I actually performed it. And then when I came in to hear it a week or so later, you know, it was their voice instead of mine. <laughs> and I just assumed that meant, okay, he just, you know, he wanted to do it himself. And he, and he also homogenized it because I did the rap more like a rapper would do it. You know, same, all the same words, but it had more of, of an attitude when I did yeah. it. Yeah. And he did it very straight. You know, and so I figured, oh, OK, maybe that's why I did it, because he wanted it to have that more neutral appeal, you know. But then when the record came out, I didn't have any credit. <laughs> so, you know, and I thought, sure, if I just had my 10 cents from writing the rap on black or white, that would have been better than nothing, <laughs> you know. But, um, yeah, that was another person. And that'll be addressed also in the near future, too, uh, okay. in terms of people knowing about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, so, you know, it's Bill Betrell. Who am I? What am I? You know, it's only one other person. It was Bill Betrell. Yeah. So, there's another instance, and I was reflecting on this and thinking about just how much like your work has actually come out. And for example, um, in the film, this is it. In the there's a section in it where Michael's doing a dance breakdown. It's he called it the drill, and this is it. But actually, what it is is the instrumental behind the mind is the magic. Oh. I didn't know that was there. Now, the thing is, this film is the num- was at the time the number one grossing music documentary of all time. That piece of music was used to promote that film all around the world in adverts. Well, let me just stop you right there. Michael Jackson wrote The Mind is in Music. Okay. I, I, didn't, I didn't have anything to do with the writing. I just, I just did the track. Okay. So he's the, he's the, he's, he wrote he's, that he's himself a, and produced he it. He is the writer. He is yeah. the writer and producer of that track. So okay. anything you like about it or dislike about it, he's the guy. Okay. okay. Yeah. No, that's all right. I was just thinking of like, oh my goodness, hopefully this isn't another time where you've been royally. <laughs> no, 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 no. And, and even, even to mind it, you know, I kind of got railroaded into doing that. I, I, I actually did not like that song, <laughs> you know, and I, I kind of got railroaded into doing it and even teased by the engineer uh, that worked on it. Him and his girlfriend would call my answer machine and sing the chorus. Leave it. What's <laughs> what's calling? Leave the leave the chorus to the song of my because they knew I didn't want to hear it, you know. So they would call wow. and sing it to my answer machine. Yeah, I think it ended up going on to become the official theme song to um, Siegfried and Roy. It was. It was in their show and everything. That was that was why we did it. I mean, it was a big deal. Steve, you know, Steve Wynn, the owner of the Mirage, had come to the studio to hang while we were doing everything. It was all of that. Wow. So yeah, he was a great dude. He was a great dude, Brian. Michael was really notorious, I guess, amongst his producers for being an absolute perfectionist and really to a fault often. 
Um, were there times or moments where something you felt something was complete, but Michael just didn't want to stop working on it? Maybe on occasion there might have been a part that uh, I laid down, and he thought, well, "What do you think? How you feel about that? You maybe maybe that can be something else. Maybe that can be more this, that, or the other." Yeah. And I listened to it and go, oh, "Okay, I'll do it again, maybe." It didn't happen a lot because we were pretty much on the same page with that. I mean, like, uh, and I'm I'm shifting gears a little here, but that's fine. Let's let's look at um, do the Bartman now. Uh, let's let's clear another huge misconception about that. I wrote "Do the Bartman." <laughs> okay, there's, there, there, Michael Jackson did not write "Do the Bartman" and put my name on it. There is even a book somewhere that says I'm not a real person. I'm a pseudonym for Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even exist. We're not having this conversation right now. Um, what happened on What happened with "Do the Bartman" is this: Matt Groening and and Jim Brooks asked Michael if he would do the show, which eventually you know he did. Yeah. And in the course of that, they were putting together uh, Simpsons Sings the Blues, the album. Yeah. They asked Michael if he could contribute a song. Michael had 10,000 other things to do. So he comes to me and he says, would you be interested in writing a song for Bart Simpson? (laughs) Hell yeah. I mean, why not? Of course. (laughs) You know, I mean, I was a huge Simpsons fan. So I was, I was good with that. So he had the, the title came from Michael. We would call it do the Bartman. Okay. Um, somewhere in the song, um, I need you to say, if you can do the Bart, you bad like Michael Jackson. Okay. <laughs> um, and he had a scrap of a chorus idea, kind of half melody, kind of half something, not, not a whole thing. And said, just something like that, you know, whatever. Uh, Okay. And so I spent maybe 45 minutes to an hour one day, you know, in the parking lot at the studio, pacing with my dictaphone, writing the lyrics. I had a little pocket idea because of the thing he suggested. You know, I had a, I had a feeling for a time, for a time frame, you know, a tempo. And uh, because it was something that he wanted to be danceable, obviously. Yeah. So. And I took that and I wrote the lyrics. Yo, hey, what's happening, dude? I'm a guy with a ref for being rude, terrorizing people wherever you go. It's not intentional, just fixing the flow. Fixing test scores to get the best scores, dropping banana peels. I just it's like what can I what can I come up with that what describes the complete utter delinquency of this little kid? You know, just <laughs> you know just you know, he's just a bad seed. How do I spell that out and make it funny? That was my objective. And um you know, about forty five minutes an hour I had it. I cut the track the next day. Michael and I did the background vocals together, literally. When you hear the record, it's, four, it's either four-part harmony with an octave or four-part harmony. Michael and I are singing each harmony together. We laid the parts simultaneously in one pass, everything. To do the part, man, that's both of us. The part of the song, which so many people said, you can tell that's Michael right there, the, the, you can, the way he's singing it. Move the body if you got the notion. That's all me. Michael's not singing there at all. <laughs> <laughs> the part that everybody was so convinced was him, you know, is all me. Michael is singing in the chorus only. Originally, I had done the lead vocal. I very sped the tape, slowed it down. So when you sped it up, it was higher. It sounded more helium induced. <laughs> and I did the rap. Nancy Cartwright came into the studio and heard what I did 
and went, why are we even going to do it again? This is perfect. She loved it. <laughs> I thought, and I thought for a hot second when she said that, I thought about it, but then I said, no, it's only really going to be authentic if it's you because you're Bart. I mean, there's no, you know, and, and for me in my heart, yeah, and in my heart, I wanted, well, there, I, had a, I had a mischief moment. The mischief moment was, let me be Bart's singing voice. You know, let me be the voice that did the rap. So when you see the video, <laughs> yeah, it sounded like Bart, but it was somebody else. I thought because, and the joke, the joke there is you've seen that so many times on television. Some character starts singing and it's somebody else's voice. That's it. Yeah. You know, so, so it was like a joke thing. It was like, would have been an inside joke. But then I still thought, no, nah, it'll be better. It's actually Nancy. And so she did it. Now, here's the trivia for anyone who doubts that story. <laughs> Ask any of the cast who works on The Simpsons, who they were in the studio with all day when they made the record. Michael came in at one point to say hi to everybody, but um, he was not there at all. He was not present. So that's the story. That's the Do the Bartman story. And that that is fantastic. Thank you for sharing that with us. That that song went number one in Australia, Ireland, New Zealand, oh, uh, the UK. Yeah. You had what another question hit. about that. Why wasn't um, it a single in the United States? Yeah, I'm curious why that didn't come out in the US. Because... David Geffen used it to sell the album. <laughs> that was it. That's the only answer. <laughs> I was actually in the room when Michael was on the phone with David, who was promising Do the Bartman was going to be the biggest single ever. And then they didn't release it. Michael and I were both steaming. And I knew when uh, the song didn't come off the album, uh, when they were playing, it was all over the radio, but there was no single. So they were selling the album, and I said... At some point, I mentioned it to him. I, you know, I said that, yeah, well, we hear Do the Barman everywhere, right? And then Michael looked at me and said, yeah, but there's no single. <laughs> so we, we both were upset that, yeah. um, that uh, the song got used that way. Because once again, while I made money, <laughs> you know, John Boylan, who produced the other 12 songs on Simpson Sings the Blues, actually made the money. Because with an album, when the album sells all of the revenue from the sales is divided amongst the third or however many tracks. So in this case, there were 13 tracks do the barman was one of 13. So the album sells 2 million copies in the States. The other 12 tracks were written by John Boylan. <laughs> you know, so wow. John okay. Boylan actually made more money from the sales of Simpsons sings the blues than I did. Yeah. Even though yeah. there were no other singles. Were there any other singles? I don't think there were. I'm not sure. I can't answer that question. I'm not sure. But you just did answer that question by saying you're not sure you can't answer it. <laughs> <laughs> very, very clever. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> what about um what about the uh the birthday song? Is it Lisa to birthday? Happy birthday, Lisa? Is that I that's... had nothing to do with that. Okay. I had nothing to do with that at all. That's another assumption in the fan community, is that, that you also did that song. Wow. Yeah, now listen to any of my music and listen to that. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it. Yeah. You know, I do believe I know who did it. I won't say because I, I don't want to be wrong, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I do believe I know who did it. Yeah. Okay. Um, Maybe I that want... person is actually responsible too for uh, If You Love Me. What did you call it? If you, what if, is it if called? You, I'll, what I'll do is I'll just... Because I'm really curious about this song. It's called If You Don't Love Me. That's the what the title of the song. I'm just going to see if I can find a way to quickly get the sound coming out of my computer, not my earphones. One sec. No. 
No. Okay, wow. Okay. No. I'll play you a little bit of the verse if you want. You may recognize it. Yeah, so that song came out at the same time. It leaked at the same time as all of the ones we've mentioned. Like she got it, worked that body, and so it was just assumed that that was you as well. No, but it was also assumed at one point that all of my stuff was Teddy and Bill. (laughs) So, you know, I remember reading that. You know, who did these? Did Teddy Riley? That was when I realized how little people knew about me. It's like, wow. I mean, really, no one recognizes that I actually even worked on the record. You know. So, yeah, I, that was when I discovered all of that. When my first, when I first started really finding the leaks and just reading comments, which is not something that I'm prone to do, but I, no. I just did just to see. And you know, the questions in general were, who did these tracks? Was, is, did Bill Betrell do these tracks? Bill Betrell definitely didn't do the tracks. Um, you know, Teddy Riley was a closer assumption because you know, Teddy Riley would be more capable of doing what I did than Bill Betrell would be. But. Um, you know, it was it was then that I understood how anonymous I was in the whole <laughs> in the whole equation, you know. So, yeah, it's it's, it's been an interesting ride. But no, if you don't love me, uh, sounds like a Vidal Sassoon commercial. I, I've never heard that one. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, God. Whoa, Lisa. Right now. Ha. If you got the groove, you gotta use it. 
Bart, you're bad like Michael Jackson. Everybody, if you can do the fun, oh yeah. Shake your body, turn it out if you can dance. Shake your body. Take the side, yes, you can, can. Everybody in the house, yeah, do the fun thing. Everybody, if you yeah. can do the fun thing. Shake your body, turn it Check out. Check it out. Patterson. I'm the director and choreographer for Michael Jackson, and you are listening to the MJ cast. I think it's really important for fans to kind of understand, like a little bit at least, about the politics that were going on around the Dangerous album. Because you mentioned earlier at the start of the interview that things were complex um, around the players on the, on the record. So as we move more towards 90, 90 and 91 and the albums being prepped for release, what was going on with these different people? Well, you know the the um, politics. I don't. I don't know if you call it espionage. I mean, you know, you, you got you know you, you got Bill Bottrell asking me to work on tracks and not giving me credit. You've got um. You know, think of remember this. When I'm in the studio, okay, we did most of we did most of Dangerous at Record One in Sherman Oaks, California. When we were at Record One, I was in. There were two rooms, okay? There was an A room and a B room. The A room was the big room. It had a large format Neve console in it. The B room had a smaller API console in it 
I occupied the B room full time. It was just me. The A room was split. The time was divided between Bill Betrell and Bruce Wadian. Okay. When I came into the project, I'm coming into the project thinking we're here. We're all here to make a good record. We're all here to do whatever we're going to do to make this record the best it can be. I assumed that everyone in the building understood, you know, we're, and well, everyone in the building understood, you know, we're all here to do this. Everyone in the building also was a huge player. I mean, Bill Bottrell had already done big records for Thomas Dolby and, and whoever else. Uh, um, Bruce Wadeen is Bruce Wadeen. And um, so it's like everybody that was in the building, I, I just assumed, which was a bad idea, that all positions were filled. Everyone understood their roles. Bill would come by the B room every now and then to hear what I was doing. I didn't mind that. Um, and I would likewise go to the A room and hear what they were doing. Nobody seemed to mind. But when you think about what ended up happening, I mean, you know, how, what, who ended up on the record? What ended up on the record? You know, what happened while the record was being made? I mean, you know, Bill asked me to come in and help him fix something that he was dissatisfied with on a song. I'm not there to work for free. I'm not there to, you know, um, to, uh, you know, help enhance your work and not be acknowledged for it. So you asked me to come into the studio and rewrite your rap. I'm assuming that's a that's an obvious writer's credit. I'm, I'm a songwriter uh, uh, and I'm a songwriter first you know, producer and I'm an artist who writes songs and then is a producer. So the producer is the last thing in the chain. Okay. So, you know, you, you've got situations like that. I mean, why would Bill Bottrell have me come into the studio, rewrite what he didn't like that he written himself, not tell anyone about it and then lie about it in interviews. <laughs> he did an interview in uh, musician magazine or, um, I think it was musician where he said that Brian was uncomfortable doing the rap. And so I did it. Okay. So the black kid from West Philly is uncomfortable doing a rap and the California white man was not. <laughs> I mean, that, that didn't make a lot of sense to me, uh, to read it, you know, just didn't, I come from the culture. I come from the place where rap was born. Rap mm. was born in New York. I come from down the street in Philadelphia. I mean, rap was a part of my life as a kid. You know, I don't feel comfortable doing a rap. That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, that's the kind of stuff that was going on. I mean, that's, you know, uh, at the end of the project, uh, when it was becoming clearer to me that none of my music was actually going to make the project, they were working on Jam. Jam was like one of the last songs that got done. And as you know, it was written by, well, maybe you don't know. Primarily, it was written by uh, the track, at least, was written by uh, Bruce Houdin and Renee Moore. The track that Bruce and Renee brought in sounded almost just like, you know, I mean, it's a Teddy Riley production, right? But the track that Bruce Houdin and Renee Moore brought in sounded almost just like what you hear as the record. It was the feel was the same. Teddy augmented the sounds and maybe maybe uh, arrangement wise, some other things happened, but they already had a good piece of the core of the, what that track was. So they're working on that. And it's clear to me that none of my stuff's going to make the record. And Michael says to me at some point, why don't you come get on this? So I'm like, okay. So we got Renee Moore, Bruce Wadeen, Ted Riley, Michael Jackson. And I'm going to just piggyback on this after I've done all of the stuff that I've already done that he's not going to use. And I just passed. I said, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so, and that was actually how I ended up leaving 
the project. That was when I left the project. When I, I knew what was happening, I had finished Serious Effect. Michael vetoed, and so I said, "Okay, I'm done here." Wow, and that was so, it. Yeah. yeah. So how how did that get communicated to you that the work you'd done would not be on the on the album? Was that an official conversation with Michael Jackson, or was you just <sighs> you were feeling well, it? You, in you, that well, I know, no. Well, I, I'm I'm I just explained the record was almost done. You know, Jam was one of the last tracks that got done, and Michael kept a whiteboard in his office with all the contender songs for the record, and none of my songs were on the board. <laughs> and I'm like, Michael, none of my songs are on the board, and I don't want this record to come out with none of my stuff on it. He said, that's not going to happen. He promised me it wouldn't happen, but it did. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's, you know. And I have spent a lot of time not talking about my involvement in any of the music because of, of the things I'm telling you now. You know, because it's not really a lot of good memories for me. Um, not that I didn't have fun working with Michael, because I did. You know, we spent a lot of time together. And also, I'll tell you this for nothing. Oh, I have a question for you. Of course. Um, you said one of Michael's closest friends and producers declined to work on the project in late in the early 2000s. Who were you referring to? When you said this that? is the late 2000s. This is Brad Buxer. So Brad Bucks is somebody oh. you might be familiar with. He was actually uh, well. Let, let me tell you this. Sure. Well, let me tell you. Now let me tell you about Brad Buxer. <laughs> Brian Loren is what Brad Buxer didn't want to know about. Brian Brian Loren is what Brad Buxer didn't want in the studio <laughs> when he was doing whatever he was doing with Michael. And Brad um, was definitely not one of Michael's closest friends. That's not true. Um, I spent more time with Michael one-on-one than probably any of the other producers that worked with him. Michael spent Christmas and Thanksgiving at my house on at least two occasions where there was no one there but me and him. Um, And we spent that time either working on tracks, you know, if we did any music, or watching television. (laughs) I mean, literally. We spent time just hanging out, talking about things that didn't have anything to do with music. Um, I can't, I don't think Michael spent a lot of time like that with Brad, um, away from work. You know, Michael would put on a disguise. We jump in the truck. He was driving a white, I think it was a GMC pickup truck, a big pickup truck at that time. We would jump in the truck and go to Tower Records. It was a big record store, um, at that time. And he'd put on a disguise, a beard, (laughs) a mustache and a hat and some glasses. And we walk (laughs) into Tower Records and shop. You know, and uh, inevitably, of course, he would be recognized by someone, usually uh, usually somebody working in the store because they were watching us move through the store. And he comes to the counter and inevitably he has to pull out a credit card that says Michael Jackson on it. But already the clerk has figured out who it is because the the disguises were ridiculous. (laughs) You know, (laughs) the disguises were ridiculous. But, you know, but that's, you know, Michael and I were probably closer on a friend level than a lot of people that he worked with. And I think that's probably why you find that I worked with him as long as I did across as many albums without actually being a major player on the albums. You know, I worked with him across three of his last four albums. I think I'm the only producer who worked on three out of four of his last four records. So I could be wrong about that, but I don't think so. That's their stories that have never been really shared. Can can you talk to us about your involvement on those other records, like history and... 
well, well, my involvement on history, again, as I've already said, there are songs on history yeah. uh, that sound like uh, some of my tracks. Uh, the song DS sounds like a track I wrote. Um, that's history, right? Yeah, that's history. Yeah, yeah it's history for sure. Yeah. Um, it's about the attorney, the um, district attorney yeah. that was after him. In yeah. Bits and pieces of DS sound like a track that I wrote as well as morphine sounds like the same track called it bits and pieces of both of those tracks came from it. Um, but, um, you know, history, I, they did a lot of that in New York. I went to New York to do some stuff on that. I mean, I, you know, again, when I went to New York to work on that record, it was, it was like, nobody knew even Michael. I mean, when he asked that I come, it was not determined or decided what it was I was going to do. He just wanted me to, de- to be there to hang out. And while I was there, I worked on, uh, I did vocals with him on a track called Money. <laughs> That's one of my favorite MJ songs. Okay, so the rap, the, the speaking, the spoken word rap vocals, the group spoken word vocals are me and Michael together on that wow. track. And I'm doing percussion on that track. And uh, I don't think I'm on anything else on on history, <laughs> you know. I, I don't so, think. so you would have worked with Rob Hoffman on that song, right? Who is Rob Hoffman? Engineer. He engineered. Money. Oh, maybe I don't. I don't remember who was okay. running the board then. Yeah, he was. I, don't I spoke to him once, and he told me that the loop underneath "Money," the drum loop, is actually from a a, a loop CD. Like Michael got a, a drum loop CD by. Yeah, a, I, can, I can hear that because it sounds like it. It sounds, yeah. you know, it was a, it definitely. When I when I heard the track for Money, it was definitely a track that it was a labored sounding track. It was a track that they were going to have to shape to get it to speak. You know, yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of stuff. Even in the records, you can hear in the mix, there was a lot of stuff going on on that track because when they were finishing it or putting it together, you know, they they kept piling on to make it speak. Speak meaning you know sound great. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, bop. Yeah. So okay. So. That's history. Blood on the dance floor, obviously, as you know, it's Superfly. The Superfly sister. Yep. And um, and then there are a couple things on Invincible that sound like, <laughs> you know, and it's, it, it became it became a running joke for me after a while. It's like history comes out, and when I finally listen to the whole album, I'm like, okay, that sounds like that. Uh, and that kind of sounds like that. Okay, what else? Then. Blood on the Dance Floor comes out and we do Superfly Sister. And then when I finally hear the album, I hear Morphine and I'm like, okay, that's it. <laughs> and there's a couple things on Invincible, same thing. By the time I got to Invincible, by the time I got a copy of Invincible, it's like, okay, what on here is going to sound like one of those tracks? <laughs> and there and, are a couple things. And you're saying there's a, num- a couple of things that do, yeah. Okay. Yeah, a couple of things. Because remember, you think about it this way. You know, Michael, as Michael was pulling ideas from those tracks to finish, you know, to make whatever music he was making, that's how he was showing whatever other producers he was working with what he wanted to do. He was yeah. using those tracks to do that. Yeah. So obviously some of the ideas from those tracks are going to end up in whatever they're going to do because that's what he wants to hear. Yeah. You know? So, so, I mean, I've got to ask the question then. I mean, like you get to 2001, you've heard these records, you're hearing all your stuff throughout it. Did you ever think about taking legal action against... MJJ Productions. You take legal action, and sure, you can take legal action, but who do you think's got more resources for legal action, them or me? Well, I mean, Sony's a machine, isn't it? 
Okay. So it's huge. You know, so you, you can even if you have a case, the, the thing about legal action is even when you have a case, it really comes down to who has the most money, doesn't it? Because if somebody if the people that you are suing have more money than you, they can drag the case on forever. They can <laughs> they can you know, they can they can actually beat you by making you run out of money because they can drag the case on forever. Oh, tell me about so, it. Yeah, Sonny, you're so trying you, to do you know, that right now. <laughs> you, right. Are, you fam- are you familiar with the uh, the Casio case that's happening right now? Uh, for more reasons than I can explain to you. Oh, um, damn, because I would love to know those <laughs> reasons. <laughs> well, and, 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 and here's the other thing. You know, I'll tell you this for free, that I was, I was very amused when the truth came out about those vocals because of what Teddy, you know, Teddy was claiming that the record was all Michael. Yeah, he he says that you know, on Oprah. He says nobody can do a scream like Michael. That's his voice. And I mean, and and I mean, not only does he not only does he say he he goes on Oprah, and so he's like he's outwardly claiming Michael was you know well I don't want to get into that, but yeah. um he he stood up and said those vocals were real. Yeah. So when that when that story came out, I mean, my stomach hurt for a week because I was laughing really really hard because I could also you know. <laughs> Paris could hear. Michael's daughter could hear. <laughs> Those vocals were not Michael. Oh. You know, so I'm I'm listening to a couple of the songs and I'm like, whoever this kid is, it's an interesting sound. But you know, it's it's not that dude. <laughs> no, we know who it is. It's that's not for that sure. dude. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. That I mean that is that's that's that Jason Malachi kid. Right? Yeah, that's right. It's Jason. Yeah. It's Jason. Yeah. I've spoken to him. I've spoken to the producer of the uh, the songs, oh, Eddie Cassio. Yeah. I've spoken to him. It is a mess. It is a giant mess. And I mean, uh, that's the thing that's angered me the most out of being a Michael <laughs> Jackson fan since since he passed away is that Sony and the estate would release those songs against the wishes of his family and fans. His family were begging them, don't release these songs. They're not him, but they did it. It really does kind of make a mockery of of his legacy a little doesn't it yeah that they would treat him that way in death you know i mean just, you know i wasn't i wasn't crazy about um the so-called hologram either i just thought mm. you know because obviously that was not a hologram it was something much less than that something much more hokey than that and um it was an impersonator. They filmed a European impersonator. It's, it's, and, and I mean, you, well, you just said it yourself, a European impersonator. <laughs> so it's like, you know, only, I mean, and, you know, I don't know if it fooled anybody. I mean, maybe it fooled some people. Well, it's not supposed to be him anyway. It's supposed to be uh, animation, basically, right? I mean, if it's a hologram, it's animation. No, no, the bottom so, half. So everything from the neck down is a real impersonator and the head is CGI'd, which is even worse, uh, in my opinion. And, I, and I'm and I'm also gonna I'm gonna debate that with you too because that head did not look like that head looked like your impersonator friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that 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 was not the head of Michael Jackson. Yeah. So yeah. So you know. To, so they've done a lot of things, haven't they? That you know haven't really been. Um, it's been shocking, been so- <laughs> and it's is they released a box set of all these music videos. They put they slapped a sticker on the front that said it was remastered. None of it was remastered. Um, they really, 
Wow. Absolutely. There's just, there's, uh, I can, you know, they put the bad 25 reissue out with a, a quality, the concert that they packaged with it was like VHS quality of the concert. They've, they've done a number of things over the years that have just totally, you know, the This Is It film itself. I mean, just that alone. Like, we know the truth of what was happening at those rehearsals now and how bad a state Michael was in. He was being physically abused by the promoters. Um, and they they took the best footage they could f- they could find of that. They manipulated it and they put it out as like a, a concert film. Let's celebrate this. I will, I will also say this about that, though, because that's, you know, that's, that's quite an indictment. But I'm, I'm going to say this about Michael Jackson. And, you know, I knew Michael Jackson well. And I knew Michael Jackson like, like every day well for, for two, two years and change. And then I knew him on and off for the rest of the next decade, right? And the one thing that I know about Michael Jackson is he didn't do anything that he didn't want to do. He didn't do anything that he did not want to do. Understand me when I say that. And that's about people. That's about material. That's about Whatever. I mean, Michael would put his foot down and be the king and not do it if he didn't want to do it. And so just consider that when all of those other things are being said about him being abused and manipulated. I mean, I'm not saying that none of that happened, but I'm saying that less of it happened than people think. (laughs) You know, less of it happened than people think. Michael was very willful and headstrong and um, he was not keen on people pushing him around. So, I mean, just for example, I won't say who it was, but this is an example of what I'm talking about. One day we're in the studio and, you know, we're working on whatever we're working on. We're actually having a great time this particular day. I remember that particularly because of what happened that followed. So we're having a great time and we're working on a track and the phone uh, rings and it's the front calling the seat, receptionist calling. Michael, uh, uh, such and such is on the phone, a famous person, very famous person, very famous, important person. And uh, such and such is on the phone. And Michael sits there for a second. He goes, oh, I forgot. I'm supposed to have a meeting with them today. And I said, oh, OK, so we'll, oh, oh, I, we're going to wrap up now. He said, no, 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 no. Uh, just wait a minute. So he picks up the phone and he's talking to you like I'm talking to you now. And then when he says hello, he goes, Hello. And then, you know, he waits. Person on the other end speaks and he goes, Yeah, I know we're supposed to have a meeting, but I'm really not feeling well today. So, um, <laughs> he called in sick. <laughs> he basically called in sick. I mean, now we've been sitting there laughing and joking, <laughs> you know, working, you know, and, and the day's going as any other normal day, but I watched him do that to several people. He didn't do what he didn't want to feel like doing. If he didn't feel like it, he didn't do it. Period. And that went with everything. I promise you. <laughs> so, I mean, even if you think about the end of things, the way things went at the end, what was going on in the house, how, you know, the things he had at home, you know, you're not supposed to have the things he had at home, but he wanted them there. You know, he was supposed to have that equipment and some of the others, but he wanted those things there. That's the way he wanted to do it. And that's what they did. So, you know, just a thought, you know, keep that in your head. And that's, you know, because we, we, we do have those those situations where, you know, a, a particular picture is painted of a person. And you've seen 
with Michael, you've seen that picture unravel as the years have gone by. You've seen different bits and pieces of that picture come apart, you know, about what he did, how he did it. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the big Quincy Jones debacle that occurred a couple months ago. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, do you mean the co-write, the, the uh, allegedly stolen Billie Jean from the Donna Summer song or? Well, well, not not just any, any, any of the stuff that he said. I mean, the stuff that he said about Michael, Michael stealing songs, the things he said about, you know, uh, and I can I can, you know, having nothing to do with me uh, for yourself, for your own purposes. Check out a Gavin Christopher song called One Step Closer. See what you think that sounds like. Okay. Uh, check out. Uh, you familiar with uh, Shaka Khan, of course. Yeah. You familiar with the group Rufus? No. Okay, Rufus is the group that Shaka Khan comes from. Okay. It was Rufus featuring Shaka Khan, right? In seventy six seven, Rufus and Shaka Khan had an album called Street Player, right? On Street Player. There's a song called Destiny. Okay? Destiny, the string arrangement on Destiny was done by Claire Fisher. A year and change later, the Jackson's Destiny album comes out. Not the same song, but uh, an album called Destiny with a song called You Push Me Away with strings arranged by Claire Fisher. <laughs> Push Me Away sounds suspiciously like the song from the Street Player album, which has the same name as the album Push Me Away is on. <laughs> so, I mean, when you put the two and two together, <laughs> you know, when you put two and two together, it's hard to hard to consider that those things aren't related. You know, one step closer, Gavin Christopher. OK, just go have a listen. I will. I will. Okay, so what you're saying is like there's a tendency in the fan community to paint Michael as a victim, but in a lot of cases he might have had a lot more control than we let on. Hmm, that's a good way to say it. And um, that's also a good way of explaining why over the last decade I've done very few interviews. I'm, I'm talking to you now because obviously the, the letter was released, but I also have a new record coming out, and I know that people are going to be coming to me about the letter <laughs> as well yep. as other people are coming to me about my new music. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we, that's why we're talking now. But I mean, I've avoided doing interviews because usually when people come to me about the interview, they want to ask me loaded questions about him. And the loaded questions usually are, you know, tell us how lucky you were to be in Michael's presence. And I don't really feel it that way. <laughs> well, you know? I mean, I will say, though, that like, I mean, and I, I do agree with you there and I, I feel that and I agree and I understand now at the, you know, now that we're getting towards the end of our interview. But before now, I didn't, I really didn't understand the depth of um, how much okay. you'd been taken advantage of. Like, I knew that your songs had leaked out and that was, that is incredibly unfortunate and sad. But all of the other things around how you've been sidelined, I knew nothing of that. And that's extremely sad. Well, they, they weren't purpose. I wouldn't say that they were purposely side. I wouldn't say anyone was purposely sidelining me. I would say that, you know, people grasp and grab when they feel like that's what they need to do for whatever reason. So, you know, Bill not crediting me on black or white. I mean, you know, for whatever reason, I mean, there was no reason there was no obvious reason in, in, from my perspective for him to do that. We were all there working on the same album. <laughs> so it's like, 
what, you know, and I never thought for a moment when I finished the rap and I walked out, this was after I had already done the bass and uh, the bass synth and drums on the record. So, you know, this was a different day altogether that I did the rap. So I'm yeah, yeah. just assuming when I was done with that, oh, so that's, you know, so that'll be 10% writer's credit or something. Cool. I, I didn't even think twice about it, you know? Um, in fact, it was black or white that um, I actually had, I mentioned to Bill earlier uh, something about it that, you know, needed to be changed or she should think about changing. And then he did. So I knew he was paying attention to the comments, commentary I had about, you know, anything. So when he asked me to work on the track, I'm naturally going to assume any songwriter asks another songwriter, hey, would you come help me, blah, blah, blah. That's a writer's credit. There's no, that's an unwritten, you know, an unwritten reality. That's a writer's credit. So I never assumed for a moment that he wouldn't credit me. But, um, yeah, you know, that's just kind of the stuff that was going on. And then, you know, the, the sidelining, uh, you know, was, would, would be Michael's doing. I would say it was anyone else's doing except for a situation like that with Bill. But, you know, it was Michael basically this at that time, Teddy Riley's name was larger, was bigger than mine, you know? And there were, there were probably some other people in his ear too saying, you should, you know, you should have Teddy come in and, and whatever. And that's what he did, you know, cause he was, he was also, very fidgety that way. He was not Michael is as big an artist as he was as talented and capable as he was. He was also what most of us artists are extremely insecure. And so anyone else saying, man, you should have somebody, you know, anybody in his ear about whatever was going on, you know, he's thinking about it. Maybe really, you think, well, you know, he's going, it's, it's just something that artists do, <laughs> you know, it's something that creative people do. They're always second guessing themselves. So if you've got somebody in your ear second guessing you, then you know you 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 tend you, you're prone to listen or or at least consider. Did you have much to do with Teddy in the studio? Did you interact with him much? Uh, not much. We did the, the, the handful of times that we did. You know, because it was when he when he came in. Oh, and here's another thing that while I'm not going to point at the songs, you know, the songs, the the couple of songs that I'm telling you that on dangerous that sounded like my song were suspiciously the songs I didn't get to hear before I left the project, <laughs> you know, because obviously when they were working on it, if I'd heard that, I would have said something then. Um, but, um, even after when I heard the record, the reason that I didn't stand up was because, you know, I always assumed somewhere along the line, Michael would make it right. You know, I, I always gave him the benefit of the doubt that he would make it right. And that actually never happened. But, um, and again, I felt like, you know, just going the whole stand up and complain, you know, I'm still a working player in this industry. And so I, I didn't want to be a guy who looked like a guy that was going to start a bunch of trouble because he didn't get what he wanted or something, you know. Um, and, and it's easy to paint that picture of someone who has a gripe of some kind. You know, it's, people tend to try to look at that person as, uh, you know, somebody that didn't, that is just bitter, is angry. They didn't get what they thought they deserved. I don't think it's coming across like that, to be honest, Brian. I think that well, the depth I, of sorry, you go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say I, I don't know. I'm just saying, you know, I'm, I'm I, I know that because you know people are cynical, <laughs> and so but, yeah, you know they, they just sure assume a lot of the time they yeah, and they uh, they assume that oh he's just angry because you know they didn't use his material or they, and I, I always I always point I mean up to the point that I worked with Michael. Look at all the records I made. Before I worked with Michael, I'm the sole on almost every record I've ever written and produced. I am the sole writer and producer. I am also usually 
almost always the only performer. On most of the records I've made, I've played every instrument, every note. I'm even often doing the background vocals in front behind the artists, whoever they are. So why suddenly when I got to Michael Jackson, <laughs> would I be incapable of doing what I've been doing for all the years before that? I mean, how did that work? Yeah. You know, so, you know, and there were a whole bunch of, oh, man. I mean, even, you know, Heavy D even came into the studio and threw salt one day. <laughs> so, I mean, just you just you had all kinds of stuff going on, you know. Heavy D didn't know who I was, comes in the studio and tells us that a track that we're working on that, um, you know, has got some street on it is not street. He's thinking I'm a kid from California when I'm from down the street from where he's from, you know. <laughs> so he's just assuming I'm some guy out because he said he made some comments like that. Y'all, you guys out here or something like that. And it's like and I didn't say anything, but I'm looking at him like, dude, I'm, I'm from Philly. I mean, I, you know, this <laughs> I, I didn't say anything. I just let him talk because he, you know, he knew so much. <laughs> and he, he had it he had it all figured out so i just let him ramble but i mean yeah you know we had things like that going on and obviously that affected michael when he heard that you know so you know there, there were there were so many variables so many things that probably played into why it ended up the way that it did but i knew that when he showed up that that was the beginning of the end because i knew why he showed up <laughs> so you know, I just I went with it. I wasn't going to argue with it because if I argued with it, it would have just made me look worse. Yeah. So I just decided, OK, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and walk away. Yeah, I'm going to read I'm going to read a little bit of your letter here. Um, so fans okay. can, who haven't read the website um, can go there, first of all, hopefully they can follow our link in the show notes and go to Brian Um I do have an excerpt here and it says. The recordings, meaning that the songs that you worked on with, with Michael Jackson are of live performances, not sequence tracks. And I am, other than MJ, the only performer. Many long hours, days, weeks, months went into the creation of this music, my music. And yet, while this music has been and continues to be pirated and bootlegged, I have not profited one cent, nothing. Even as you read this, the music is posted in forums, on YouTube, and passed around hundreds of thousands of times in many ways. I've actually had people write me asking for copies and requesting for their own purposes a breakdown on how I created the tracks. Seemingly, they are unaware, or don't care, that they are asking me to literally hand over the, my livelihood. Online, I've seen eBay auctions of my music. I am astonished that people are so willing to attempt to profit from somebody else's life endeavors. It's not like I'm dead. Which brings me to this. Dear friends and music fans, I am an artist who is also a professional, meaning my creativity is my livelihood. When you go to work, you expect to be paid. It's no different for the creative artist. It is in this spirit that I humbly and respectfully ask if you have downloaded my music, shared this music, posted this music, even edited your own versions of this music, as some of you have, then I graciously ask that you please support the creator of this music. Pay me. Something. Make a donation. Whatever you think is monetarily fair. Make your contributions to this creativity at PayPal. To Loren Jackson Music at BrianLoren.com. And uh, I, I certainly will be doing that. I know a, a range of my close friends already have. And uh, Brian, I'm 100% behind you in, in all of the hard work that you did with Michael Jackson to be recognized in some way for that. I appreciate that, man. A great deal. Thank you very much. That's okay. Now, just to before we wrap things up, I want to ask you about, um, I'm not going to ask you about 
you know, a fun memory you've had. You've, you've mentioned some of those already. And you've also mentioned that it was, you know, in hindsight, a difficult period of time as well. But um, I, I will ask you, how do you think Michael should be remembered? Oh, man. Talk about loaded questions. That's a really <laughs> loaded question. Because there's so, you know, there's it's so complex many, for you. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and, you know, because I, I, I mean, wow. It's, you know, that man had. First of all, he, he, he really had like three lives. The first life was as little Michael Jackson from the Jackson five. Which was completely different from anything that happened when he was an adult. The second life was as Michael Jackson from the Jacksons, which was different from life with the Jackson five. The third life is the king of pop. And um, in all three of those lives, you know, I mean, he went through so much stuff. He lived the lives of several people, not just those three, but he lived the lives of probably five or six people with all of the things that happened in that time. And what we know about Michael Jackson, he can be remembered either in, in, with great fondness or in infamy for so many different things, you know? So, well, how should he be remembered? I mean, I guess if it's up to me, you know, I think of Michael most fondly as a member of the Jacksons, really. I think of him most fondly as little Michael from the Jackson five and the guy in the Jacksons. The reason that I think of him that way most fondly is because that really is the time in his life that it seemed to me that he was the most carefree about doing his thing. You know, everything once he became Michael the superstar was calculated and, and, and you know, perfectly planned and timed and, and you know, about publicity and, and it, it stopped being fun. And I mean, I, I got to see some of that up close. It just wasn't fun anymore, you know, because it, it, it's a lot of work being the king of pop, isn't it? I mean, keep maintaining that image, maintaining what supports that image, because a lot of that is just hype. So, you know, I watched him go through a bunch of stuff, even while I was with him. I watched him. I watched him. I watched, uh, you know, Tommy Mottola uh, dig in on him because, you know, he wanted to get the record done. That was when we were working on Dangerous. And I watched Tommy dig in on him. I didn't see it. You know, Tommy came to the studio, went in the room. They were in the room for 10 minutes. He came out and left. And when Michael came out, he was crying. <laughs> so, you know, I, I've, I've seen him go through so many different things. Um, so I guess with the memories, even with the music, you know, I tend to separate who Michael Jackson, the superstar was from that other Michael Jackson. And it's the other Michael Jackson, the younger one is the one that, you know, the one that I didn't know because when I listened to Michael Jackson from the Jackson five, I don't think I knew that guy. I think of that was little Michael Jackson. You know what I mean? He was a different, uh, he was a different person to me than the guy I knew. Even Michael Jackson from thriller was a different guy than the guy I knew. So it's, it's really a hard call to say, you know, how should he be remembered? Just, you know, as a great musician, as a great, uh, uh, the greatest, one of the greatest uh, crooners of all time, ever. He had one of the best singing voices I've ever heard. 
And I guess that's probably the best way for us to remember him as a great performer who loved to perform and was really, really good at it. You know? That's great. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was an awesome answer. That's really cool. Cool.
this is Rob Hoffman, studio musician and engineer with Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. Just want to take this opportunity to explain to listeners, maybe if you're a first-time listener to the MJ Cast, where you can actually find us on social media. Uh, we are all over the internet, um, but you can definitely find us at the MJ Cast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, we strongly recommend that you subscribe to our show as a podcast, even though we're on YouTube and at the MJCast.com. We do recommend that um, you use a podcasting application uh, such as Apple Podcasts if you've got an iOS device or a Mac. Uh, you can find us on there. And, and also, we're all across the um, different Android podcasting applications as well, like Stitcher Radio. Uh, the reason we recommend you subscribe as a podcast is because you get the show delivered to your device. Uh, and of course, many great things come with that, like show notes that you can follow the links in directly from the application while it's still playing. You don't have to worry about going to a to a website to, to listen to the file and all of that kind of thing. Um, so yes, please consider subscribing to us as a podcast. We've also played a few songs in this episode that we hope you've enjoyed. We started off the show with a Brian Loren and Michael Jackson collaboration called Work That Body. Great track. Then we played my personal favorite Brian and Michael song called Serious Effect, Do the Bartman, and, and She Got It, that Brian talked about a little earlier in the show, um, especially when recounting how Michael recorded those incredible hand claps um, that, that are featured in the song. So you mentioned you've got new music coming out. Talk to us about that. What's the, is the record of a name yet? Is it, when's it coming out? There, well, there, it, it will eventually be an album. It's going to first be a handful of singles, the first of which should be out, uh, certainly by summer, certainly by June, Great. I think. Um, and I do believe, um, that people who like, the work I did with Michael and like Michael's music might find something to enjoy in my new work. Oh, oh. I would also I would also like to clarify that um, I've gotten a couple of, of letters at the website about my saying in the letter that I, I was working on new Michael Jackson music. I actually did not say that. What I did say was that I will soon post HQ copies of all the stuff that's leaked and perhaps some things that no one has heard that wouldn't be new music and it wouldn't be something that I was working on now. I just mean, literally there are some things that not everyone has heard because not everybody had them. You know, I'm the only person that had some of it. So, you know, I will post, I'm, I'm going to post all of that stuff, but of my own stuff, it's, it's, you know, it's a Brian Loren record I was talking about when I said yeah, new yeah. music. Yeah. I understand. So, I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, no, I'm very, I'm very curious and I'm very excited, but I'm not going to press you on it because I understand that, you know, one thing you haven't had in your, in your career with Michael is control in a lot of cases. And I want you to, you know, I, I feel it's right now for you to, to have total control over what's going on with your, um, with that music. So, well, as, as, as much as I can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, that is very exciting, and the MJ fan in me is extremely, extremely excited to see what might be coming from Brian Loren. That's that's very cool, and I can't wait for your new music as well coming mid year. It's going to be great, cool. great. Okay, and I and I have a friend called his name is Chris. He wanted me to ask you. He really is curious what your favorite, your three favorite albums are of all time. I told him I'd ask ask you. My three favorite albums of all time. Oh God. Well, first of all, there aren't just three. 
<laughs> so, you know, three would be, you know, because even even of my favorite albums of all time, I would have to say whatever the albums were and it wouldn't be in any, any particular order. So if I can't put them in order, I can't just choose three. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, one of them. Uh, but I, you know what? I can choose two. And it would still probably be more my top five or six all, of all time because, yeah. you know, I, I'm I'm a musician who enjoys music, all genres, not just the genre that I am known for doing. In fact, the genre that I am most known for doing is not really my what I excel at. It's just what I'm known for doing. You know, it's another thing that happens in the course of being in the music industry and falling into genre production. You know, you're known for X, Y, Z, you know. But um, favorite albums of all time, uh, number one would probably be Music of My Mind by Stevie Wonder. Um, uh, another would be, and again, these aren't in order. Uh, another would definitely be Off the Wall by Michael, which I believe is his best album, his best solo record. Agreed. Um, oh, agreed. Oh, good. good yeah, for you. my favorite, number one. Um, yeah, it's it's really it's the most consistent, it's the most cohesive, it's the most well-made record of his solo career. And uh, if I had to, you know, if I got to pick a third and just mix it up a bit, I would say Asia by Steely Dan. <laughs> cool. Yeah, which is one, which is definitely an album I spent. I spent my I spent the year my 14th year of life, you know, listening to that album probably more than anything that year. I've listened to some of it as, as recently as three or four days ago. Yeah. So yeah. it's still a record I play a great deal. So let me take a wild guess. You love Stevie Wonder. You love Michael Jackson. The song on Off the Wall that I that I reckon is my favorite, it definitely my favorite, is is I Can't Help It, the collaboration between Michael and Stevie. I love that song. Hmm. I do too. My favorite song though, as much as I love that from off the wall is definitely rock with you. I'm a huge Rod Temperton fan. <laughs> yeah. That's great. And, and, and Rod Temperton was a huge influence. Rod Temperton. Are you familiar with heat wave? Yeah, I am. Yeah. Okay. So Rod Temperton and heat wave were huge influence on my upbringing. Huge. Um, songwriting production, all of it. A lot of it. I got a lot of things I got from Rod techniques. <laughs> Did you have a chance to meet him or, or chat to him? Never met Rod. Never met or got to talk to Rod. I'm I'm hugely sorry in my life that that never happened. Um, because I, I knew I, for so long, you know, we had so we knew so many people mutually. Yeah. But we never, I never did get a chance to run into or talk to him. Yeah. But he was, you know, one of the greatest pop songsmiths of all time ever. You know, the work he did, all of the work he did with Quincy, as you know, phenomenal work and. And, you know, he didn't write anything that Michael recorded that wasn't just brilliant. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, is there, as we finish up, is there anything else that you would like to include or discuss, Brian, that, that we may have missed? There's, I'm, I'm I mean, you've, you know, you've got actually, lots of time if you do. You've been, you've been quite thorough. I mean, you, you know, you've touched on most of the stuff. Um, I appreciate the attention that you've given to the letter and uh, all of the folks just let me say to uh, to all of the folks that have contributed and that have written me notes, I'm really overwhelmed with the notes. I'm, I'm humbly overwhelmed with people telling me how much they appreciate that I made the music. 
uh, in the first place. And um, that's really something that's nice to hear, considering the way that it got out. And um, uh, I appreciate all the attention that you've given that and, and your breakdown on, on it. And, um, you know, that's pretty much it. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we look forward to some cool music. Uh, I, I really, I, I, and yeah, let me add this as well. I really hope Michael's fans are going to check at least for the music that I'm working on now. I really believe that they will probably find things they enjoy in there. Uh, some of which that they might be missing otherwise. Yeah. Um, I think that I had, um, I think that I had a particular pulse on what Michael wanted to do. I think that if we were able, we would have made records together that would have been different and more interesting than a lot of things he did do because I was definitely reached. I was swinging for the fences. I wasn't really trying to do conventional. A lot of the music, even on, on, uh, on, uh, dangerous, you know, funky as it may be, it's a very conventional record. The, 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 the songs that ended up on it. And I was really trying to do things with Michael, you know, that were more eclectic. I think work that body is an example of that. It's a, it's older funk. It's, it's vintage funk. And I was trying to go in a direction that no one expected us to go. Yeah. So, you know, I think you'll find some of that in my new music. You'll find some things that are familiar and probably, probably you'll find some things that you'll identify with if you like the music that I made for him. Great. Great. That's exciting. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that, uh, that is our interview with Mr. Brian Loren for the MJ cast. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. And I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in to the MJ cast today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, 